Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, if there's anything said from this pulpit that is not according to your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if anything is said that is according to your will, let it be heard as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe and believing obey. Amen. The Scorpion and the Frog. You probably heard the fable where a scorpion asks a frog for a ride to the other side of the river. The scorpion promises not to sting the frog, for then both would drown. The frog thinks that's reasonable and lets the scorpion climb on its back. But halfway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog anyway. The dying frog asks, why did you sting me knowing what would happen? The scorpion replies, couldn't help it. It's my nature. What is human nature? Listen for responses from these passages from Genesis and Luke. Then God said, let us make humans in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every living creature that creeps upon the earth. So God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Jumping to chapter three, now the serpent was more crafty than other wild animals that the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor you shall touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then from Luke. Just so I tell you, Jesus is speaking, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. The word of the Lord. Original virtue or original sin? At birth, are we more prone to do good 
or are we more prone to do evil? The verses that I read from Genesis come from two chapters with two different perspectives. The verses from chapter 1 are encouraging about human nature. Humans are created good and are capable as God's stewards of taking care of others and taking care of the world around us. In short, we are made in the image of God. That is our original virtue. The verses from chapter 3 are discouraging about human nature. Eve and Adam succumb to temptation and try to claim their own authority over what is good and what is evil by eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Left to their own devices, they do what is wrong. That is our original sin. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which original is original? Virtue or sin? That is the debate not only of theologians, but of every academic discipline or social practice that wants to try to understand human nature. Without supervision, without training, are children more prone to kindness or cruelty, to help others or to think only of themselves? Another way to ask that question is this. What would happen if children were stranded on an island? Absent the constraints of law and civilization, how would they behave? A 19th century response to that question was offered by R.M. Ballantyne with his novel, A Coral Island, A Tale of the Pacific Ocean. I remember reading it as a kid. It's a great read. This book tells the tale of three British schoolboys marooned on an uninhabited Polynesian island. They band together not only to survive, but also deal with pirates and cannibals who come to visit. This is a good image of God's story because when left on their own, these schoolboys rise to the challenge of doing what is right. A century later, William Golding read this book. Golding was a teacher at a strict British boarding school and he thought that Ballantyne got it all wrong. More than an observer of schoolboy behavior, he struggled with his own inner demons. He asked his wife if she thought it was a good idea for him to write a book about stranded schoolboys on an island behaving in a way in which they would really behave. She told him to give it a go, and he did. The Lord of the Flies was published in 1954. This book is often required reading in high school. I had to read it for class. I bet many of you did too. If you did, I bet it has stayed with you because the book is disturbing. Now, this is a sanctuary. It's not a classroom, so I won't go into plot details or into anything disturbing. I'll just say that the lads marooned on the island without parental supervision do not rise to the challenge by banding together to survive, but instead divide into tribes and descend into savagery. This is a good original sin story telling us that without the veneer of civilization, its training, its restraints, its threats, the world should expect the worst from us. We are born savages who must be trained to behave. I guess that most people side with Golding because that book has sold over 150 million copies, although the Coral Island is still in print. Indeed, for all the attacks on the doctrine of original sin that has been 
for all the attacks that has been made on the doctrine of original sin in the modern age, those silly literalists believing that there was an actual original sin when even Adam took a bite, those silly Roman Catholics of old who spoke of our being conceived in sin as if sex were something dirty and evil as a part of our DNA, those silly Protestants of old who spoke of total depravity and like to say when they confess their sin, there is no goodness in us. For all the attacks the doctrine of original sin has gotten in the modern age, the idea that on our own we are prone to evil has been assumed by most. The majority opinion of most disciplines is that unless we are saved by, well, if not God, at least by law and civilization, we are nothing but selfish brutes. This assumption has been especially strong in the modern age with its experience of two world wars and ethnic cleansing campaigns such as the Holocaust. Since the word of theologians is less trusted in the modern age, it became the goal of objective science to prove its own secular doctrine of original sin. Some of you might remember, or maybe you read about, or maybe you had to study in some 101 class in college, three famous studies of the 1960s and 70s when behavioral science was coming into its own. Behavioral science was the celebrity academic discipline of many campuses back then. These three famous studies seem to prove that our natural state is that of a brute. Now, again, this is a sanctuary. It's not a classroom, so I won't go into any disturbing details. Feel free to read about these studies on your own. There was the Robber's Cave Experiment of 1965. Boys were taken to Robber's Cave State Park thinking that they were going to summer camp. Actually, they were unwitting participants of a study. They were assigned to one of two groups or tribes, and neither group knew at first that the other existed. They were given their separate and differently colored camp shirts, taught different camp traditions, and given time to bond. And then gradually, the tribes were introduced to each other. With minimal supervision, they played competitive games. The report by lead researcher Masafir Sharif was that they came to see each other as enemies and violence would have resulted if the study had been allowed to continue. Then came the Sanford Prison Experiment of 1971. Student volunteers were divided into guards and prisoners and locked in the basement of the Sanford University Psychology Department, which was made to look like a jail. Left on their own, how would they behave? Particularly the guards who were given uniforms and power. The report by lead researcher Philip Zimbardo was that the guards on their own became increasingly abusive of the prisoners. And then there is Stanley Milgram and his shock experiment. In 1961, Milgram paid volunteers to take part in an experiment where they were paired up. One was to be the learner who would be asked questions to repeat sequences, and the other was to be the teacher who would administer a shock if the answer was wrong. With each wrong answer, the voltage was to be increased. And if the teacher hesitated, a researcher in a lab coat would at first encourage and then demand that the teacher increase the shock. 
In actuality, the learner was not really a volunteer, but someone on the research team play acting, and the shock machine was fake. How far would the teacher go? Milgram reported that the majority went all the way to the limit of 450 volts. These studies suggest that Golding has us all figured out. In a competition between original virtue and original sin, original sin wins out. Only here's the thing. There is mounting evidence that all three of these famous experiments were flawed. Rutger Bregman's book, Humankind, provides a convincing summary of evidence that these famous experiments were manipulated to confirm conclusions already drawn by the researchers. Turns out that the researchers who were supposed to be minimally involved were actively engaged in encouraging results. And even with their interference, the true results were not accurately reported. For instance, the boys involved in the robber's cave experiment were aggressively encouraged to be competitive and see members of the other tribe as threats. In the Sanford prison experiment, guards were more kind than reported. Also, the volunteers who were to be the prisoners were not paid until the experiment was over. They could not drop out unless they showed signs of extreme distress, and the experiment went longer than they were told it would. They were students. They had final exams to study for, so they put on a show. The most famous one, Douglas Corby, whose cries for relief made for the most riveting scene in the resulting documentary, even told the researchers that he was just being a good employee and having a great time. His admission did not make it into the report. And by the way, Corby, who seemed broken in the documentary, quickly went on to get his own PhD in psychology. With the shock experiment, 55% of the volunteer teachers figured out that the shocks were fake. Of the 45% who thought that the shocks were real, a majority quit when they thought that the experiment was going too far. And of those who believed that the shocks were real and still went all the way, they reported that they did so not because they were ordered to, but because that they believed that they were serving science and some good would come of it. Hey, Bregman even has a response to Golden's imagined story, The Lord of the Flies. He wondered if schoolboys were ever actually marooned on an island, and if so, what happened? Lo and behold, he did research, and he found the underreported but fascinating true story of six boys who were marooned for 18 months beginning in June of 1965. They were students at a strict British boarding-style school in Tonga, a South Pacific island nation. And they were prime candidates for proving that Golding had it right. The British might call them incorrigible. They ran away from their school by stealing the boat of a fisherman they did not like, and they set off on an adventure. They were ill-prepared. And sure enough, nature provided the circumstances of a good adventure story. They got lost, a storm hit, and they found themselves shipwrecked on a deserted island. So what happened next? Did they fight? Did they divide into factions? They survived quite well. 
These boys organized themselves, divided chores. They kept a schedule. For instance, after one of them managed to start a fire using stones and sticks, they took turns keeping the fire aflame, and all those 18 months that fire never died out. If an argument broke out, those who argued were sent to different sides of the island to cool off. Then they had to come back, talk it out, and eventually apologize to each other. They built a backgammon court, a bench press, and musical instruments. And when a boat piloted by Peter Warner discovered them, they were in remarkable health, even happy. So maybe there is some basic goodness in our nature. I think there is. In fact, I think that 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 both the truths of original virtue and original sin can be affirmed as long as we let original virtue be the guide in understanding what original sin is really about. I want to go back to that shock experiment. Remember when I said that of those who believed the shocks were real and they went all the way to 450 of votes, that they thought something good would come of it? Stanley Milgram was so intent on proving a point that evil comes of following orders that he missed what there really was there to learn. People can be pushed to do terrible things if they think that they are serving a greater good. And we are more easily convinced that we are serving a greater good if we are encouraged by others. Authorities in coats who assure us that we are doing the right thing. Others around us who agree with us, who are encouraging us to do the right thing. Terrorists who kill and die for a cause have been called monsters and cowards. Actually, studies of how terrorists are enlisted and groomed suggest that most terrorists are normal people in many respects and certainly are not cowards. They are fanatical in the cause of what they consider to be good, fueled by a tribe with leaders and others fueling them with their encouragement. Their righteousness justifying evil means to achieve this great good end. Blow up a building to bring attention to what was done at Ruby Ridge in Waco, Texas. Fly planes into towers to help bring down Western capitalism. Attack schools to bring an end to educating girls which should remain at home. Violently storming a Capitol building to save democracy. Trashing neighborhoods and destroying public property in the name of civil rights. Emboldened by leaders and the support of their tribe, Virtue defenders wreck destruction in the cause of something believed to be good and worth it. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, Jesus said. No need to repent? Who really believes that? except each one of the 99 who have 98 others around them telling them that they have nothing for which to repent. It is not just Adam and Eve who took a bite. 
Entire tribes, entire movements, entire ideological silos eat the fruit of the tree and become convinced that they alone have knowledge of good and evil. Together, we can encourage each other to do evil by convincing each other that we are doing what is right. But let's not forget, we can also encourage each other to recognize the evil that is in us and do better. While our desire to do good can be manipulated, we can't forget that we do have that desire to do good. And that can be encouraged. I offer one final story. You've heard a lot of stories today. I offer one final story. George Ferdinand Duckwitz was a Nazi officer in the Gestapo. He had been influenced by Nazi groupthink, and he was an anti-Semite who saw so many of the world's problems in those people. But he didn't live among the 99. He didn't live in Germany or Poland or Austria where so much concerted effort was put into separating Jews, isolating them in ghettos, labeling them as demonic, all in the effort of convincing the masses that the world would be better off without them. Instead, Duckwitz was stationed in Copenhagen, Denmark, a country where the Germans were trying to maintain a fiction that they were cooperating with the Denmark government. And so, Jews continue to live among Gentiles, no badges, no discrimination, no widespread hatred, and no consensus that they were Denmark's problem. So Duckwitz was not prepared for what he learned was to take place on October 2, 1943. And so on October 1, he crashed a meeting of the Social Democratic Party and standing there, trembling, told them the disaster is at hand. At 8 p.m., their Jewish friends and neighbors were to be rounded up 8 p.m. the next day, placed in ships, and sent off to a fate unknown. There was instant panic, which quickly led to a plan. Well, not a plan, many plans, because there was no time to coordinate anything. Tens of thousands of Danes worked together, Businesses and churches worked together. Police, government, and social clubs worked together. And the Jews of Denmark were hidden and helped to escape to Sweden. The Gestapo agent stood apart from the 98 others because he realized that he did have reason to repent. And this is hard to believe. But 99% of those Danish Jews who were identified as sinners by the righteous, 99% survived the war. Jesus, we hear you. We celebrate that one sinner, George Fernand Durkwitz, who not only is saved, but seeing the evil of his righteousness saved so many others. Original sin cannot become the cop-out excuse that we can't do better because it's in our nature to do evil. We're just scorpions. No, it's a reminder that we can do better because that's the way that we were created. But original sin can be our reminder that in our desire to do better, 
we can be so easily manipulated to do great harm. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.